we now know, but I don't think we knew then, that saddles do extraordinary things on horses' backs. They don't do what we think they do. They don't sit either side of the spine and clear the spine. And they aren't held off the horse's spine by the panels. Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, a podcast for horse lovers everywhere, a place where we love to bring consciousness to the horse world. I'm your host, Tracy Malone, and this podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley in the northwest of Brisbane, Australia. This land I live on is Waka Waka and Turrbal country. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and to pay my respects to their ancestors, past, present and future. And I'd also like to extend that respect to each and every one of you listening. Happy 2019. I hope your festive season was pleasant enough and I'll put up a little New Year special podcast in the coming days once I am over my jet lag, letting you know what's been going on and what's happening in the new year. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Anne Bondi. Not only has she set up the Saddle Research Trust, but she also has a really interesting life and career with horses. And in this episode, we cover it all. If you've ever wondered about saddle fitting and what the research is and how far we have come and why it's so hard to find scientific proof of some things we may feel intuitively, then Anne may very well have the answer to that for you today. Anne's trust is working hard to have a voice for horses and she also strongly believes we should not blame the rider all the time when the saddle moves or when we have an unbalanced horse, nor should we blame the saddle when things don't go right. They want to educate people of the intimate relationship of the horse, the rider and the saddle and how to figure out what the problem really is. They are working to help people collaborate and bring the best information possible to each other in the research field so that we as horse owners and riders as well as obvious professionals in the field can get the best evidence-based information. And as it is on this podcast, sometimes it's a nice long one. So enjoy the ride. Here is Dr. Anne Bondi. Anne, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. My pleasure entirely. Can you first tell me a little bit about what it is that you do? Well, I try to uh, stay very connected with horses. Um, so my rule to myself really is when I'm at home, I ride my horse. And that's the most important thing. Um, I also have dogs. So it's also very important to me to go and walk the dogs. I like to keep fit. So I go to the gym. And then after that, I wear two hats. One is as managing director of Solution Saddles, which is a company I set up in 2006 um, to design and manufacture saddles. The other hat I wear is as founder and director of the Saddle Research Trust. And at the moment, that role is taking up a huge amount of my time because we're just in the last final um, weeks running up to our major international conference and research workshop. Wow. I've been waiting. So my, my day. Yeah. <laughs> I do it myself. Yeah, I've been waiting a long time to talk to you. There's so much to talk about, but we're going to start from the start because you've actually got a really interesting um, horse life as well. So let's start there. Did you grow up with horses? 
I did. Um, we had a very traditional riding school run by a lady called Margaret Stewart um, in Camperdown Park, which was within bike riding distance. Um, and going there, it was all downhill. So I used to stick my feet on the handlebars and whiz down the hill coming back when I was tired after a day with ponies wasn't so much fun. I used to have to get off and push the bike up the hill. Um, but Margaret Stewart was responsible for forming my uh, early ways of doing things. She was married to Captain Stewart, um, an, an army captain, and she was very military in her approach to things. My goodness, if we were late in the morning or we didn't have the ponies strapped, the tack cleaned to perfection, the yard raked in a herringbone style, my goodness, there was trouble. But I had a really good, solid grounding at the start of my pony days. Wow. And what did you like to ride under your military advisor? <laughs> the first pony I rode was a little Welsh, a very, very dark brown mare called Cherry. And she was very, very sweet. Um, then I was finally allowed to upgrade to something a little bit bigger. And I was allowed on Sheila. And she was grey. And she used to put her nose in and point her toes. I thought that was very, very smart. <laughs> then I finally managed to upgrade to the best pony in the yard. He was called Banjo. And Banjo could jump. And that just opened a whole new world for me of falling off all the time and having <laughs> a tremendous time. I so thought you were going to say a whole new world of an amazing love and career. I was not expecting you to say <laughs> You jump fences, you fall off some, you ask any jumper. <laughs> yeah. So what is it about jumping and falling off that kept you going back to jumping? Because you are a special breed, you eventers. You really, yeah, yeah. I think we are. We are very special. We we stay here special when somebody really is special. You know, um, what is it about? What well, falling off is is just a consequence. You know, there are ups and downs, and I I think there are copers in life, and there are people who don't cope so well. And I think jumpers, or particularly eventers, are a special breed of copers. It's coping within that split second where you don't make decisions. You just, you just fly by the seat of your pants. You just have a, an innate sense of what to do in the moment. If you haven't got that, you know, you just, you're not an eventer. Yeah, you can't analyze. There isn't time. You can't think there's no time. You just have to react. And it's, so it's that high reactivity. I think that's one of the um, most important uh, characteristics of jumpers and eventers because mm. things happen so so quickly wow. um what else is about jumping i i guess when you're younger it's speed and then later on it's more it's more technique i think these days things are, are going way too far on the technique side and we've lost some of that natural flair and people are thinking all the time now about technique technique that's so good to hear you say that because it's um it's the foundation really, isn't it? It's the it's the feel versus the mechanics and, and you really need both yeah. to be yeah. great. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, traditionally in this country people always said it was the hunting field that made people. Um and I think to a large extent that's true, but also 
you know, hacking and just riding around the countryside. You know, as kids, we would put a knapsack on our backs and load the ponies up with stuff. I don't know what we took, tents, I had no idea what we loaded them up. We always seemed to have them loaded. And we would take off for the day. Nobody knew where we were or what we were doing. Yeah. We just took off. And, you know, there's that sort of independence now, which I, I think it's a great shame that certainly in this country, yeah. kids can't have. It, you know, the countryside is being devoured now by um, humans and cars and roads and railways. And there mm. just isn't the space now. Particularly where I grew up in Scotland, you know, we were just head off into the hills. Oh, it's wonderful. Them. Yeah, we were told behind by dinner. Or dark, really. Home by dark. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. You could live on a few uh, few bickies or something during the day. We didn't didn't pack ourselves loads of food, but we certainly had a lot of fun. So what yeah, happened did, once yeah. you left school? What did you do then? Um, I took off um, and thought, well, I'll go and have an adventure. And so I jumped on a train to London and ended up working for the chairman of the Essex Union Hunt in Essex. Um, and I stayed there for about a year, just learning the ropes of oh, just starting a, to behave professionally, really, rather than playing at ponies at the weekends and in the school holidays. Um, and then I went to college for a while. Um, I went to the first ever in the UK equine science course. Um, then after that, I dotted around doing various things like carriage driving. I ran a polo stables for a while. I was involved with heavy horses, Clydesdales and plowing. And I just wanted to find out about life and about the different aspects. Um, and in Scotland at that time, there were really very few opportunities to train. So then when I wanted to learn more and start to take my exams, I then decided to stay south of the border. And so really since then, I um, have not been back to Scotland except for visits to home. Uh, my, my home has principally been in England because there are just so many more opportunities. And what did you head into once you crossed the border? Well, the first thing I did was go and train at the Yorkshire Riding Centre, which is home to Jane and Christopher Bartle, and was very inspired by everything there because it was the first time I was exposed to academic equitation. So the classical learning from the old masters, and particularly Jane and Christopher's mother, Nicole, or Bumble as we used to call her, um, she was passionate about academic learning and little by little I can't say that it, it was a eureka moment or an epiphany or a light bulb little by little I realized and came to understand how little I knew and how much I had to learn and I think it was very much down to those early days in Bumble and I stayed there on and off um, for quite a long time and uh, took my Pony Club A test and then took my British Horse Society intermediate instructors at the same time as trying to compete. So I was riding horses um, for other people at that time. And then I went to um, Karen Strakers. Now Karen um, worked with her mother 
um, and they produced a lot of very, very good event horses. And so I was bringing on some of Karen's novice horses at that time. Can we just go back for a moment? Can you explain to me what the classical teaching is and what academic horsemanship, is that what you called it? Can you explain those a little bit more? Yes. Yes. It's, it's learning a system. So it's not about rules and regulations and just simply how to sit or how to behave on a horse. It's much more about the philosophy of the partnership. And it's about the aims, but also about how to get there and to do it in a way that is harmonious and part of a partnership. Because there, throughout the ages, doesn't matter whether you're talking about 16th century or 21st century, there has been a type of riding and training mm-hmm. which is coercive. And we all know it exists now because if you go to mm-hmm. a competition, you'll see it. And no. none of us like it. But we don't really know sometimes what the alternatives are. And you will find that the people who are coercive are people who lack the training. I mean, academia really just means using philosophy Mm. to learn. So it's, it's about putting principles behind what you do, as well as increasingly these days science. So we use the philosophy of science as well. And how far did you go in eventing? I produced horses up to advanced level. Um, and competed internationally up to three-star level. I would have liked to have uh, tried uh, four-star level, but uh, back in my early days, money was always an issue, and so horses were always sold. Um, and particularly the nice, the last three-star horse I had, um, he then became worth just too much money. It was just a ridiculous amount of money and to me in those days. And so he was sold to Japan um, to a, a, an Olympic hopeful. It was very sad, but uh, <laughs> it was a necessity. You know, I had to live. I was trying to work as a professional um, and earn a living from it, and there was no other way. So mm. you have to be very realistic um, in this game sometimes. Yeah, and there must have been a little bit of pride at getting that horse to that level and then knowing Oh, fantastic. It was a, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. But he was very talented. I think over the years I've come to realise that sound, talented horses make average riders look very, very good. But as soon as they're not talented or not sound, they make really, really good riders look very ordinary. Mm. wow okay what happened next um after quite a long spell with the strakers um i then went to work at the yorkshire riding center um full time as a instructor there and i continued to to learn um, under the watchful eye of Nicole Bartle and uh, Jane and Christopher, and also their younger daughter, Belinda. Um, she was also a huge 
um, influence on the way I thought and, and how I did things. I started to learn how, how to really think when I was on a horse. And that's not something that came to me easily because, as I said to you earlier, I'm a fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants person by nature. Um, so to become a thinking rider was a long period of apprenticeship. And I think Jane in particular um, still deserves a medal for her patience in uh, trying to tweak that out of me. Uh, I still take horses to her when I can, and when I've got one that's uh, good enough to take and also um, is, is working um, consistently enough to be able to uh, make the most of training sessions with her. She is one of the rare breed of people. She's not a coach. She's not a trainer. She's not an instructor. She's a teacher. And that's mm. a completely different mold of person. She is by far the most talented teacher I've ever, ever seen. And that is that because she has an extraordinary knowledge or is it because her ability to then um, allow you to understand that knowledge and take it on? It's a mix. She has an extraordinary eye, so she has a good understanding of biomechanics, not just of the horse, but of the rider. She understands what the aims are in academic equitation. She has a tremendous way of communicating with the rider in order to get the right response from the horse, and then the rider understands the response from that horse and starts to develop and understand the feel and there are very very few people who understand how to teach feel and she's probably the only yes. one I know wow yeah that's a it's a big one isn't it and I always ask yeah. can it be taught yeah. a lot of people say yes yes so it can. it's great to know but that it's, it's yeah, an extraordinary um, thing to be able to do and it's a it's a it's a teacher's talent and really how how many people are just born teachers it, it is a mm. something you're born with it's not something you learn how to do although mm. I've learned a huge amount about how to teach from Jane but she's a different level <laughs> when I watch her teaching it doesn't matter what level it could be a Grand Prix rider or it could be a little kid who's having problems getting the pony to strike off on the right lead you know, she, she mm -hmm. gets them so motivated and, and then it just happens. She sets it all up and suddenly it's happened and you don't really know how. And then she goes back and unpicks it and then you learn how. And it's, um, yeah, an extraordinary talent. Huge admiration wow. for her. Wow. So how did you then transition? What, what took you into the saddle side of things? Oh, <laughs> there was a, a, a big, long jump um, before that happened. I think, mm, tell me then about yeah, that. Yeah, well, it is a very long story. So um, <laughs> I'll try. It's okay. Try We're a podcast. Um, We're not limited by time. So whilst I was at Yorkshire Riding Centre um, teaching, one of my lessons was Friday night, 7 o'clock, um, a certain David Bondy. And... We obviously got on fairly well because I then married him. Um, I say that's your surname, so I would expect <laughs> that. So he then had a tremendous uh, career opportunity. He was working for Unilever at the time, 
and he was offered a position in Chile and he decided to go and I thought that was just way too big an adventure um, not to partake as well so I very sadly left Yorkshire Riding Centre in order to go with David to Chile and it was in Chile that I was completely cut loose. I was in the south of Chile, not in the capital, not where there were lots of people with competition horses. I was in remote, rural Chile, and there were no vets, there were no farriers, there were no saddlers, there was no horse feed, there was nothing. And... I went through a really tough time in my own head because I thought I can't do this. <laughs> I've never in my life been, you know, in a, in a place where I didn't know what to do. Um, but as I said to you earlier, there are two types of people in life and I'm a coper and I just. Yeah. And you're down. also a kid who can get on a pony and go out for a whole day and yeah. that build resilience. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. I'm resilient. So I got on with it and in three years I had built up from trying to find horses to buy, um, which, you know, there were no horses. So I had to go to the capital and buy X race horses off the track. And bit by bit, um, I got to know people around and about. Um, I mean, Chile is an extraordinary country because it's so long. So if you want to go anywhere, you really have to travel. The distances are just huge. And so it would take mm -hmm. us a whole day just to take a horse up to Santiago. And the local um, riding club was an hour's drive away. So everything was, was big distance. But I did get a lot of work in the end, um, teaching, training other people's horses, and then actually managed to make reasonable amount of money by selling horses because I could produce something that looked quite good in comparison to the way other people were producing things because there wasn't the knowledge, there wasn't the standard of equitation in the area. Mm -hmm. So I became a sort of reasonably big fish in a fairly small pond um, and I was not only sort of quite um, popular in the end in our um, local region in, in the south of Chile um, but I was also um, the only female competing at the national eventing championships the only non-military competing as well wow. so it was, it was me and me and my military mates um, doing, doing the eventing and it was quite extraordinary um, so all of that made me learn how to fit a saddle where... But first of all, would what was it like competing? Yeah, sorry. No, yeah, that, competing. That, that I, I want to hear more about that story. In, inventing <laughs> Chile, military. It sounds fascinating. What was it like? Oh, it, was just, it was just a whole different world, completely surreal. I mean, we're talking about back in the days of Pinochet. So the mm. military and the police, the carabineros, were um, very powerful and they had a lot of horses. Um, the teams that competed were virtually all military or carabinero. There were very few 
um, civilian people riding on the teams in those days. There were a few notable exceptions like Americo Simonetti and a few um, others in those days. But um, very powerful in the um, National Federation as well. And the, so were you allowed to beat them? Um, well, I, I actually did a very politically correct thing quite by accident because, of course, I was trying to win. Um, but at the national championships, I came second to the national champion who'd been national champion for years. And he was also um, their top team rider. He was a Pan Am champion as well. Um, so that, that was quite a politically correct result, I think. <laughs> But I've got a yeah. lovely picture of, of me in the middle of all these military boys at the um, prize giving for the national championships. And I, I have that picture in a prominent place in the house because I'm just, um, it, it's such a funny picture, just me and my boys. I, I just laugh about it now. But it was, it was difficult then because, I mean, they were, they were lovely in many ways, but they were very condescending in other ways. And, you know, it was a very um, macho environment. It was a Catholic country. Um, people expected me to settle down and have babies. And, you know, it, it wasn't, wasn't like the UK. And so there also, I think there was a certain amount of pride that, you know, as a, as a girl, I could do that. Um, yeah. Stubbornness, call it what you like, pride or stubbornness, I don't know. But I wanted to prove that I wasn't there as... I suppose David's wife and um, I wasn't going to settle down and have babies. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure that second position certainly taught them that. Yeah. I, I, th I think they, they were, they were happy to, um, you know, the boys who were, who were there, the good riders, they, they were very happy to have me um, competing alongside them because they could see that I could, I could ride, you know, that it wasn't, um, it, that it was a level playing field as far as they were concerned. Yeah, they, they didn't give me an inch. <laughs> Great. Exactly how it should be. That's good. But they respected you all the same. Yeah, I think and, they did. Um, yeah. I've got a lovely yeah. picture. Um, one of the fences on the course was two Sherman tanks with their turrets pointing towards each other. And they had to <laughs> jump over it. <laughs> Brilliant picture. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What a great life experience. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's where you learned how to fit saddles. Let's start on that. Yeah. And I also learned how to trim feet and to nail shoes on and also how to give injections to the horses. You know, if there was anything wrong, I had to diagnose it myself and then go to the local pharmacy and get the drugs and then treat them because, there, you know, there were no vets. Um, wow. So, it, yeah, and anything went in those days. You know, you could buy some fair, fairly powerful drugs over the counter. So I knew absolutely nothing about what I was doing, but um, I tried my best and got a lot of books and tried to teach myself much more about horse care management than I ever thought I would need to know. And nailing shoes on, it's only the first nail you put in that's the one that really makes you sweat. Mm. The ones after that are not so bad. <laughs> Poor horses. I tried my best. <laughs> and I'm sure that they appreciate the fact that you were as well. It's not like you were 
being terrible, you were doing what was best for them. Yeah, and it was the same when it came to saddles. You know, I'd, I'd put a saddle on, I think, well, I don't feel comfortable in that. I didn't know why, but I would take it off and I would try something else, put a different one on, because I would buy some saddles in the UK and then bring them back over to Chile. And if they didn't go hollow and put their ears back and swish their tails and try and buck me off, I reckoned it was a reasonably good fit. <laughs> Mm. Sounds good. So how do you then transition from that into uh, uh, going as deeply into saddle fitting as you do now? When I came back to the UK, um, because of having my eyes open to having to learn about horse management, my whole attitude changed. I started to question everything, the why. I always wanted to know why something worked or why something didn't work. I suppose that was always in me, but it came out in Chile. You know, I really had to question myself and my practices and um, perceived wisdom also. So I questioned everybody and everything. And because I was now more aware of listening to what the horses were telling me, I started to feel much with much more sensitivity when the horses were comfortable and when they weren't. And so one horse who at that time was looking like the best horse I'd ever had, um, he had great opinions about saddles. When I got him, he had saddle sores and girth goals. Um, he'd come from a show jumping yard and had been ridden in a saddle which was very obviously too narrow for him he had a huge muscle wastage on his back very very sore under the saddle area and he he really didn't like saddles at all and then I tried a treeless saddle on him and he stopped winding his tail round and pinning his ears and grinding his teeth and he started to have no opinion about having a saddle put on him. And so that sort of made me think again um, about the functional design of saddles. So what was it about the tree that he and other horses didn't like? And I started to play around with design myself and really, I suppose, came to the conclusion that it's torque on the horse's back. You know, torque is about twisting, it's about rotations, and it's about length of levers. And I just felt, because we, we now know, but, but I don't think we knew then, um, that saddles do extraordinary things on horses' backs. They don't do what we think they do. They don't sit either side of the spine and clear the spine and they aren't held off the horse's spine by the panels saddles do extraordinary things is that what they were meant to do is that what people believed they would do when they first made saddles i don't think people really thought about the effect on the horse when they first started making saddles because you have to go back to really the days of the early days of the stirrup because that's what changed everything prior to that 
it was pads that were held on with rope um, or with, um, you know, some, some kind of strapping arrangement. So there'd be blankets or pads held on with straps. And so they, they, didn't, they didn't have any rigid parts in them. They would have a, a tow loop that people would use in order to vault on. But when stirrups came along, that changed everything. And that was the worst bit of bad news for the horse, as far as I'm concerned. Because the stirrup gave the rider stability. They didn't have to stay on with grip. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, you know, somebody's soft, mobile body on top of the horse's soft, mobile body. For the first time, the stirrup applied forces in a different way. Now, the rider mm -hmm. could stand up on the stirrups and have used his own joints as shock absorbers. And so then he could aim with, for example, a bow and arrow, and he could use the joints of his legs as shock absorbers. So he had that improved balance and stability. He could disconnect from the horse and use his levers, his legs, in order to maintain his balance. He could also use shock weapons like hammers or mace and, you know, with bludgeoning force, um, attack an opponent. But these types of maneuvers made the stirrups unstable. So then what they had to do was address the stability of the stirrups. And so the frame around the stirrups became more and more rigid in order to hold the thing in place, because in those days you could barely call it a saddle. So it started to become what we know now, a saddle, which is basically a framework that has rigid parts either side of the horse's back, and they're held together by arches at the front and at the rear. And if you look at the functional design of the modern saddle, it actually hasn't really developed from there. We're still looking at the same mm. functional design, which is rigid rails either side of the spine with arches at the front and back and the stirrup bars are held on to that rigid frame. Yeah. So what did you do to change? Now, did you find a treeless saddle or did you make a treeless saddle or did you pull the tree <laughs> out of the saddle? Um, I had a friend um, in the States and he said, I've got together with this Western saddler and I've made this saddle. He said, I'm going to send it to you. Have a sit in it and see what you think. And he was having good results with horses. Um, so I tried it and it was a hideous thing. And it wasn't particularly easy to sit in because it was flat and shapeless. And of course, I'd been used to modern deep-seated dressage saddle. Um, and I found it quite, mm -hmm. quite difficult. But, you know, young and fit, good core stability, I could cope with anything. So this talented horse that hated saddles, he said, yeah, it's fine. I can go in that. That's great. And so I started using it on a lot of horses and using it also in my own teaching and helping other people because... If it was a saddle issue, I could show them straight away by swapping into my flat, treeless saddle. And 
if they had problems themselves balancing in it, at least it gave them the feedback that the horse was happier. And so they could then go and find a saddle fitter to work with in order to try and resolve saddle fit issues. So it was quite useful as a diagnostic tool mm. in that respect. Um, but I struggled then with this talented jumping horse because it was flat and shapeless and he was a big jumping horse and I couldn't jump him in it. Yeah, he would have um, sent me into orbit. I could jump him slightly bareback, um, but this, this hideous saddle was, was worse than bareback because it, it just made him feel wider. And you know, with my shorter legs, I didn't have um, the stability that I needed. So I certainly couldn't do much about jumping him in it and I couldn't compete in it. So I then started working with the guys in the States um, to see whether or not we could produce a jumping saddle along the same lines. And we did. And I competed in it for a while. Um, but it wasn't, I felt, the best design. I felt that we needed to get the balance better for the rider and we needed to get the ability to fit it to the horse's back shape better. So I wasn't happy with where we were with it um but i think they thought they'd reached you know the end of the line as far as designing was concerned they weren't going to spend um more time or resources on perfecting something i think they weren't that interested in perfection so i thought well you know if you want something mm -hmm. doing do it yourself so <laughs> i set up over here and um set about designing things that would work better for the riders as well, not just the horses, because it's, it's got to work for both. There's no point in just making the horse comfortable if the rider can't then stabilize themselves on the saddle. So I really worked because that yeah. affects the horse anyway. Yeah. So it's it got to be a, a, a coupling of the two live systems can't just give an interface for the horse without making sure that the other side of that interface, which is the rider, then is, is able to function equally as well. So really, that's where I'm at now. Um, I continue to tweak the designs. Um, I've got five patents um, on the current saddles. Um, so, that, you know, there's been quite a lot of work has gone into that over the years. Uh, it's 12 years I've been doing it and I've got something now which I'm very happy competing in uh, but I don't think I'll ever stop tweaking the designs you never stop learning and um, trying to perfect things and approximately for someone who's been in saddles for so long about how many different kinds of saddles are there in the world really are we talking thousands are we talking hundreds how much is there really to choose from it's out vast. there? The choice is vast. Mm. It's unimaginably vast because each country has its own types of saddle. You've got the Australian stock saddle, mm. you've got the American Western, you've got the mm. English sports saddle and the old-fashioned hunting saddles, side saddles, treeless saddle. You know, if, if you just Google saddle or horse saddle, you, you will have millions of results. It, it, it's minefield. Yeah. And I think it's an extraordinarily difficult task 
for the end user, the horse owner, to try to decide what is going to work best for them and for the horse. So we have what is really an emerging profession of the saddle fitter. Um, it has, that profession mm-hmm. has been born out of saddle manufacturing because back in the old days, it was the saddlery companies who would take a saddle to you or you'd go to the shop and discuss what you wanted and you'd buy one. There wasn't really the understanding of the technicalities and the skill required in how to actually fit it to the horse. And I think it's, it's comparatively recently that we've learned how big an effect saddles have on horses and a little bit now about how we can try and best fit saddles to confirmation and to movement. It's still something that we're developing because really up until very recently, it's been all black art. There's been um, acquired wisdom, experience, anecdotal evidence, but no real science-based evidence with which to inform practice. So this fairly new profession now of, of the saddle fitter, I think is an extraordinarily important development for our industry. And people should, I think, um, always try to find a good, experienced, qualified fitter to help them with saddle fit. Many people, and I, I think a lot of top competition riders are very guilty of this as well, of just having a saddle they like. It's the magic saddle. It fits everything. You know, you just stick a pad mm-hmm. under it and it'll, it'll do. And I, I think, you know, we've got yeah. to wake up to the idea that, no, that won't do. You're expecting the horse as an athlete to perform at its best. And if you look at the um, investment, the resources that have gone into, for example, development of athletes' uh, sporting footwear, and look at the development that's gone into saddles, it, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't make any sense at all. We need to invest much, much more in research to find out what works, why it works, and how we can measure things. And, well, what are we going to measure anyway? Um, And we need to develop much better methods of really informing practice so that we can do a better job. But if we don't have the investment for research and development of products, then we're not going to come up with anything better than we have now. I, I think we're a long way from good saddles. I think some are better than others, but we're a long way from really being able to provide a reliable service to the end users. Yeah. Yeah, and it's very much about the lack of evolution in saddles over such a long time yes. of having them. They really haven't yeah, they changed have. that much. That says it all yeah. in a heartbeat, really, yeah. doesn't it? Mm. And you completed your PhD yes. studies, didn't you? Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, um, I became very interested in, as I explained earlier, 
why things work or they don't work. And so wanted to look more closely at horse saddle and rider interaction. This is something that when I started doing this 10 years ago had really been very, very little researched. So there were a lot of known unknowns. But for me, the fascinating thing was the unknown unknowns. We just simply had no idea what we didn't know. So when I started looking at the difference, for example, uh, one of my saddles made on the way it moved compared to a conventional saddle, I could see that a flexible saddle, actually because it connected with the horse's back, rather like a Nike trainer, for example, on your foot, if it fits snugly, it will connect with your foot and it will flex with your foot. And it should support your foot and move with your foot, shouldn't slip. And you shouldn't get any points around your foot where you're feeling rotation or torque. And so I wanted to try and, and really develop the Nike for horses. And I became interested in saddle movement and the way saddles move, that they, they translate through different movements. There are three linear movements, that is forwards and backwards and up and down and left and right. And we all get that, but we don't expect saddles to do much of that. We expect them to not move forwards mm. and backwards too much. Um, obviously they do because we see breastplates and we see cruppers. So they, we're, we're trying to make efforts to keep the saddle in the right place. And we often see point straps or rear balance straps to try and hold the saddle in place. So there is an awareness um, amongst saddlery manufacturers, saddle fitters and riders that saddles move. And I think riders of wide round-backed horses are much more aware of saddle movement because saddles on the wider horse are less stable they tend to roll around a little bit more. And so that can be very uncomfortable for the rider. So the rider's more aware of that movement. Whereas if you look at the narrower, more thoroughbred shaped back, a saddle can actually fit on there quite well, like a clothes peg. And so the stability is better because the tree points will hold it in place much more effectively. And you, you can look at the way people girth uh, a narrow thoroughbred horse compared to a wide round roly-poly pony, for example. The wide round-backed horse will be overgirthed in order to hold the saddle in place. But with the narrow thoroughbred, you can sometimes stick a fist between the girth and the horse's side because the girth is not necessary to hold the saddle in place to stop it from rolling. So I became intrigued with, with so, that amount of movement and looked much more then at the other types of movement, which are the rotations. So that's the pitch, yaw and roll of saddles. Mm -hmm. And what effect, so you spoke about once a saddle moves, it can, you know, it affects the rider's balance. What does it, what effect does it have on the horse? We don't know that. We absolutely do not know the effects oh. that saddle movement have on the horse. 
we can say that we think that muscle wastage and sore backs are, and girth goals are down to saddle movement, but um, it's really extraordinarily hard to measure. The favorite method at the moment of measuring is to put force sensors underneath the saddle. So MAT systems like Pliance or TechScan and there are others can be used to measure normal forces which are applied to the horse's back underneath the saddle. But the problem is they only measure normal forces. And by that I mean force that's applied perpendicular to the mat. So mats, like the tech scan, were um, originally developed for medical appliances. So to measure pressure sores, for example, in hospital beds, or to measure um, interface pressure with wheelchair users. So they're designed to be used flat. And if you put them on the contoured shape of a horse's back, you don't have perpendicular force being applied to it. So, for example, you know, on a narrow-backed horse, um, there's very little interface pressure that's directly downwards because the horse's back is very steeply sloping. So most mm -hmm. of the forces are not normal forces, that is perpendicular. Most of the forces will be either shear, which is moving across the surface of the horse's back and creating friction mm -hmm. where the subcutaneous tissue is pushed against the underlying bone and the overlying skin creating friction. And that can be either deep tissue injury or superficial. The other type of force that um, I mentioned earlier is torque. And that is rotational movement. Now, if you rotate something, it has a center point. So the six degrees of freedom are the three linear types of movement plus the three rotational types of movement. And the saddle can go through all six of those at once on the horse. But because there are three rotational movements, it will all happen around a center point. So if you can imagine a center point in the gullet of the saddle, and that you can turn the saddle mm -hmm. through rotation. So yaw is a rotation left to right. So the front of the um, saddle will rotate around to the right, whilst the back rotates to the left. You, know, you, could, you could pick up a saddle and you could do that, couldn't you? You could hold your finger underneath it against the gullet and rotate the saddle on the top of it in a yaw. So the other rotation mm -hmm. is pitch. And if you keep your finger in the same point underneath the gullet, and then the front of the saddle goes down as the back comes up and vice versa. So you can feel that that's a different way of rotating. And then the third rotation is roll. Mm -hmm. And if you move the whole saddle down to the right, the left comes up. And if you move it down to the left, the right comes up. So there, there are your three rotations. And it's all about round that one point where your finger's in the gullet. So if you now imagine the saddle on the horse's back and it goes through its six degrees of freedom of movement, that center point is where the torque 
is all concentrated. And if you have a very heavy rider, mm -hmm. that concentration will be greater. But also, critically, if you have a very tall rider, that will also be concentrated um, more because the torque will be increased by the length of the levers that the rider is able to use. So, for example, imagine an extreme of leverage, a polo player leaning over at speed and hitting a ball. And if he's tall and heavy in relation to his pony, which most of them are, then you can imagine there's mm. tremendous torque. But if you put a pressure sensor or a force sensor mat underneath the saddle to measure that, you'd be only measuring one of those types of forces. So we're, we're not even touching uh. the surface of, of what's going on underneath the saddle. Wow. And have you done, have they done, or you done, or anyone done much around the horse before and after those things? So like in body work and how the horse feels and moves and then after that type of movement with a certain saddle? There have been small studies, small samples done by various um, people doing physiotherapy or chiropractic degrees. Um, but they tend to be mm. fairly small samples and done as direct comparisons before and after. I think the, there are very many problems with equine research. And one of the biggest problems is the ability to do longitudinal and crossover studies. So we need to not just compare a mm -hmm. snapshot before and after, but we need to compare what happens over time. And if you mm. compare what happens over time, how do you control all the variables? Did, was the horse mm. ridden every day by the same rider in the same tack on the same surface for the same um, amount of time and doing the same movements and so on and so on and so on? How do yeah. you do that? You know, it, it is extraordinarily difficult um, to carry out um, good quality equine research for very many reasons. And one of the main one, of course, is funding. Mm. Yeah, well, that would be a massive yeah. study to yeah. even yeah, think about exactly. doing something like that. And then there's the opinions of the different, um, the different body specialists anyway, because the osteo is a little bit different to the Cairo, which is different to to other people and how they would treat and what they would see sometimes. Yeah, anyway. I think um, most of these sort of studies are, are better done at a veterinary level rather than a physio level. I mean, there have been some done um, using, you know, different pressures on the back to test for sensitivity and, and so on. Um, but one of the biggest problems is finding sound horses because if you, if you don't start with a horse that's sound and pain-free, you, you can't control that variable. So you can't make accurate comparisons. Yeah. And a recent study I was mm -hmm. involved in uh, involved a sample of 20 horses, which is a very average number for equine studies, research um, studies. So the, this is, it's a reasonable number, in other words, is what I'm saying. 
it's very hard to get that number together mm -hmm. all at once. You know, people who are prepared to give up their time and be travel and be at a place and, and, and so on. It, it's very difficult. But in one recent study, 80% mm -hmm. of those horses, which were in normal, regular work and believed by their owners to be sound and pain-free, were in fact lame, had gait abnormalities and or pain-related ridden behavior. <laughs> Why does that not surprise me? And also with this type of thing, it depends on how the rider is riding on that day as well because the rider has such an enormous impact on how it is that the horse is going to perform even if the horse is sound. So there's... Yes, but um, remember what I said earlier that a horse that's not compromised, is working pain-free, will make a very normal average rider look quite good. And the opposite is true. Yeah. And I think it's time we stop blaming yeah. the rider. Because weight for weight, mm. the horse will have a far bigger influence on the rider's posture and movement than the rider can possibly have on the horse's posture and movement. So unless something's mm. a severely underhorsed ratio, um, in other words, what I'm saying is the horse will have a, a bigger impact and influence in the interaction than the rider will. And you, you see this um, mm. with cases of crookedness and saddle slip, for example, um, that very often if the saddle moves to one side and takes the rider with it, because we know that riders tend to stay connected with the saddle rather than with the horse, so if the saddle goes off to one side, the rider will sit crookedly because they'll stay aligned with the saddle. Now, if a, a coach sees that, chances are they'll try and correct the rider. But mm -hmm. I, first of all, would try and understand whether or not it was the horse that was causing the problem. Because in mm. uh, the majority of cases, for example, of hind limb lameness, that will create a saddle slip effect because they don't carry the saddle straight, because the lameness will alter the gait pattern of the hind limbs and also of the back. So the, the rider cannot sit straight um, with correct posture and good vertical alignment if the horse um, shows either lameness or gait abnormalities. God, it really does bring home that it is yes. a two-way street. And if one of the partnership is not working well, then the other one, you know. But as you were saying, the sound horse has a better chance than um, an unsound horse. So tell me a little bit about the Saddle Research Trust that you founded. Yes, um, I founded that in 2009. Uh, it was just before I started my doctoral project. Um, I'd started to get very interested in how horse-saddle-rider interaction works. And also, I wanted to try and look more closely at ways that we could promote the welfare of the ridden horse. Because there are movements and charities and so on that do a lot of good work for horse welfare. But don't focus on the ridden horse. Mm, and there are so a lot of... Um, issues that we've seen hit the media in the last few years, which are 
very unpleasant to watch. You know, there's been huge controversy over Rolker, for example, um, and then all the other ones to hit the press in this country have been things like blue tongue, uh, blood in the mouth, uh, blood on the flanks, um, pushing tired mm-hmm. horses at the end of a three-day event. There have been several um, high-profile riders who've been um, disciplined for that. And so I, I think, you know, it's time that somebody said a little bit more um, about the ridden horse, but in a evidence-based way. So we need to gain more evidence mm-hmm. about what impacts the welfare and performance of the ridden horse. So really that's the first aim of, of the trust. Um, but then also to raise awareness of the widely underestimated issues surrounding the interactions between horses, saddles and riders. And what I've just said just now about lame horses carrying the saddle to one side, well, let's not blame the rider all the time. Let's look to see whether or not the horse is compromised. And so vets need better education in lameness evaluation. Currently, we don't have a gold standard protocol for how to do a lameness evaluation. Some inexperienced vets might leave out seeing the horse being ridden. But we know that there are many types of lameness and gait abnormalities that are only present or only visible when the horse is ridden. And then some that are only ridden under certain conditions or only visible ridden under certain conditions. Sorry. So 10 meter circles, for example, it might do a perfectly acceptable 10 meter circle to the left, but suddenly throw its head up or fall in or grind its teeth or swish its tail or swing its quarters when it's asked to do a 10 meter circle to the right. We're missing an awful lot if we don't see the horse evaluated under all conditions. And also then it's raising awareness amongst the coaches, not to blame the rider all the time, raising awareness amongst saddle fitters. Don't blame the saddle all the time. (laughs) If the saddle's slipping, It might be slipping because the horse is lame. So don't shim it automatically, asymmetrically to hold the saddle in place because it might not be a saddle issue. So huge um, task to raise awareness. And then we want to educate and inform all the stakeholders within the equine industry. So um, including riders, coaches, horse owners, professional healthcare practitioners, salary professionals and other welfare welfare organizations and then finally we support humane scientific research and the translation of scientific research and then the dissemination of information to all the stakeholders so four very focused aims um, for the trust It's so fantastic what it is that you're doing and I still can't wrap my head around how one person could do so much for a horse. Like they would have to train in so many different things, like not just the saddle fitting but then the rider and the horse biomechanics and all the things that you're talking about and then they would have to have the understanding of how to do the testing and there's such an extraordinary Mm. amount there. Are you putting some of those protocols together as a part of your trust? What we're trying to do um, is to improve communication between industry 
and scientific researchers. Because until researchers look at the challenges that are faced by saddle designers and saddle fitters, they're not necessarily addressing those issues. And equally, if saddle designers and saddle fitters don't understand the challenges of carrying out research, then they might have unrealistic expectations about what could be achieved. And also we need industry to back and to finance scientific research, but they'll only do that if it's going to be relevant to practice. So I think that there is quite a a gap there to uh, try and fill. And we're certainly very active in improving communication, understanding of the challenges faced by all the stakeholders, and then encouraging collaboration. And one of the things we do is hold research workshops. And this is being held in conjunction with our conference next month. And the research workshop is a closed meeting. It's by invitation only. And it's all the top researchers working in this field around the world. So we provide a forum where people can come together in a safe environment What happens in the room stays in the room. Uh, It's not reported on to the media. And so people can be very open and honest and frank and discuss, discuss some of the issues and highlight where there are um, misunderstandings, miscommunications or rifts even. And there are some. And so we try to bring people together. Um, to troubleshoot, to problem solve, and to try and drive research in this area forward. Wow. It's amazing. I love what you're doing. I love it. And I'm so glad. We, it took me a long time because you're such a busy person. Yeah, and now I know uh, why. Um, to get you it's on the been quite a difficult year um, just trying to bring this huge conference together. Uh, it was sold out in July, yeah. months ahead of the, the date, which you know I'm thrilled about because it shows that there is a huge and growing interest in this area. So we're now actually um, going to live stream the conference on the 8th of December so that people who haven't managed to make the journey and, and come and be, be with us um, and haven't managed to purchase the tickets um, to be there themselves can actually look at it live on the day. And I think there's a 48 hour watch again um, facility also on the, on the website. So we're hoping that as many people as possible will take advantage of of that. Now we've decided to go ahead and and organize it. Fantastic. And what is that website? SRT 2018. Wonderful. And where can people find out more about you? What is your website as well? Uh, Saddleresearchtrust.com has quite a lot of information. It's not as up to date as I would like because we're all busy at the moment. <laughs> so, um, the, the more yeah. up-to-date information about the conference and what we're doing this year um, is on SRT 2018. But also, if people want to sign up for our newsletter, then we do send out regular updates about research that's happening, 
about events that are going on, um, training opportunities, and so on. So it's a, an informative newsletter for anybody who's interested in this field. Mm, and I think we all need to be interested in the field, not to go in and do the research, but we really need to start um, keeping in touch with what's going on here because that's an interaction. I'd always thought about the horse rider interaction, but I hadn't ever considered the saddle in between. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, it's, like you consider it, but you don't consider it in the whole picture and you do at the moment of saddle fitting and then you kind of just, you, you yeah, it, it, fades into the distance there every now and then so I, yeah, I think we does. all yeah you're quite right fades a bit yeah mm. yeah we need to keep our awareness and, and keep ourselves educated as to to what's happening and moving mm. because mm. I, I think some great things are going to come out of this well and thank you so much for your time today I know I've learned a lot and I've um I've loved hearing your story and I love what you're doing I'm so glad that um that you had all of these experiences and that it took you going to Chile to um, to start you on this path. Isn't it extraordinary what life does for you? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there were probably um, an, another big thing, which I always forget about, um, was I actually had a rotational fall eventing. And Ooh. that was a little bit of a epiphany. Um, because I was riding in one of my flexible saddles. And so in the rotational fall, it was, I stayed in the saddle. That's what happens in a rotational fall. You know, what I was talking about, the rotations of a saddle is always a center point. Well, in mm -hmm. a true horse rotation, you stay in the center. You, you don't go mm -hmm. anywhere. Um, so you end up being crushed by the saddle in most cases. So a saddle with a rigid tree can, I think, do quite a lot of damage. And we haven't looked at this at all yet about which bit of the horse or the saddle impacts on which bit of the rider in the case of a rotational fall. And I think because we've had so many very serious accidents and fatalities, it's worthy of consideration. But um, when I had my fall, it was the saddle that, that came on down on me and I'm pretty clear that if it hadn't been a flexible saddle I wouldn't be here today so that was a little bit of an epiphany um, but it also pretty much finished my professional eventing career um, because I fractured my pelvis and my spine and it took a long time to um, get over that I'm still getting over it really um, so I started then to have more time to do other things and more time to think about saddles. And it wasn't that there was one moment where I decided to get into saddle manufacturing and designing. It's just that I could do it, so I did. And I think that's been you know, true of my entire life. Whenever I've wanted to do something, there's always been a door open there and I could just crack on and do yeah, I'm so glad that door opened um, for you and for us. And I'm glad uh, I'm glad you are doing what it is that you're doing. And I'm I'm going to sign up for that newsletter. And I strongly encourage everyone else to. And I'll put all the um, all the links and everything in the show notes as well, so people can click straight through. That's great. And, Thank you. 
um, we will absolutely keep in touch with what it is that's going on and and each time you find something amazing um, you just let me know and, and we'll get on and we'll broadcast it because this is a really important piece of information that horse people all over the world need to know and it, it's about the horse and the rider and the saddle and the, the combination of all so let me know when you've got something new and uh, and we'll get it on and let everyone know about it. Well, there'll be a lot of new information coming out after the conference. There's some new research being presented um, about pain behavior in the ridden horse and also about the effects of rider weight um, on the interaction. Oh, fantastic. We will book it in for early next year once right. you've dissolved and sorted all that out and we'll, we'll definitely do another one because I think that's, that's amazing and I think the listeners are really going to want to hear that as well. Yeah, good. Beautiful. Well, thanks again for your time today. My pleasure entirely. To connect with Anne, please follow the links in the show notes and go and sign up for her newsletter so you can check out all the new things they just learnt in December, all the new research that's coming out around saddle fitting. Remember, go to the show notes, follow the links and check her out. I'm on a mission to create a community of gentle and ethical horse people so that their horses all over the world can live a better life. This is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses, please engage with me somehow. You can leave a review on iTunes or Facebook, share or comment on social media posts or tell your friends about the podcast. You'll find all the links to our social media on our website, comealongfortheride.com.au. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and you'll find me on LinkedIn. If your friends don't know how to podcast, send them to my website and tell them to hit play. It's the most user-friendly way to listen for anyone you know who'd love to listen but isn't quite sure how. I'd also love it, really love it, if you get in touch and say hi. Let me know who you'd like to hear interviewed on the podcast. I have some wonderful people lined up to speak to, but this is your show as much as mine, so please, if there's anyone you'd like to hear from, get in touch via the website or social media. If there's a topic you'd like me to cover, if there's something you'd like me to research more and really speak about at length or even just in a short way, let me know. I'd love, love, love to serve you guys more. Anyway, thanks again for listening and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.